All righty. Anybody ready for the word this morning? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. A few, a few of you are excited about the word this morning. Uh, uh, this morning, we're going we're gonna, to um, shift gears a little bit. Uh, we've been in a series uh, that we've titled Occupy uh, or Do Business Until I Come. Uh, this morning, we're going to shift gears a little bit. Because we have entered into the holiday season, it's Christmas, and, uh, and we get to remember and commemorate and celebrate the birth of our Savior, right? He's still the reason for the season, right? He's still the reason for the season. So we're going to shift gears over the next three weeks, starting today, and I'm going to kick off a new series that I've chosen to call Adore. 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 And the reason for that is simply this. Um, I think one of the central themes of the Christmas story, of the Christmas narrative, is worship. Amen. Amen. But I think it's one of those themes that is often ignored, or we simply just miss it. Uh, there are so many things about the Christmas story that are notable, uh, that are worthy of examination. Yet I think one of the elements of the Christmas story that is deeply profound and that should resonate with every Christ follower is the theme of worship. And I'm going to attempt over the next three weeks to unpack what biblical worship really is. Because it goes beyond just the songs we sing. It goes beyond just the beautiful melodies and the beautiful creative lyrics rewrite. Over the next three weeks, we'll rediscover what it means to simply adore our Savior. And my prayer over the next three weeks is that something in each of us will be reignited. The love or the first love we once enjoyed when we first encountered Christ. Jesus in, in Revelation, I believe it's chapter 4, said this. He says, man, you're doing a lot of great things, a lot of awesome things. But guess what? This one thing I have against you, you've, you've fallen from your first love. And so over the next three weeks, my prayer is that each of us will rediscover the Christ of Christmas and fall in love with him all over again but that it would even be a higher degree of love, right? Not, not just say to somebody, because uh, we, 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 I think we say that word and, and, and we, we forget the full import of the word love, because I, I love you, man. I say that to Brooks all the time in a manly kind of way. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> in fact, when I tell Brooks how much I love him, I don't even say love. I say, I love you, man. <laughs> like L-U-H, right? And... and I love that shirt. I love those pants. And, and so that word love has lost, uh, I think it's true meaning. In Greek, there are four words for love, and each one has a very specific, very specific meaning. But in English, all we say is love. But let me ask you this. When was the last time someone walked up to you and just said, I adore you? I can just imagine Paul and Leslie around the fireplace and he's got his acoustic guitar. I bet y'all sing to each other all the time, don't you? You don't, right? Oh, you, you don't, you don't, right? And, and, and Paul gets on one knee with his acoustic guitar and says to her, Leslie, 
I adore you. That would be a special moment, right? That would be a real special moment that would just kind of melt your heart. And, and, and because something about that word adore takes this whole idea of love to a whole nother level. Somebody say whole nother level. And that ought to be our response to our God. Adoration. Every time we think of him, every time we hear his name, there, there should be something in our hearts that responds with adoration. Matt Redman, a worship leader out of England, said it this way. He said, the problem with worship is that if we don't see it, we can't say it. That the difficulty we have in worshiping God is really a result that of having lost our vision of God. And I have to say to myself, when I stop worshiping, when I stop raising my hands, when I stop adoring Jesus, it's really not about anything outward. It could be about something inward. That I've stopped seeing Jesus for who he really is. Because when we see Jesus for who he really is, there is only one response. And that response is worship. There's only one response to having seen Jesus for who he really is. So the next week we're going to talk about this thing called worship. Darlene Check, songwriter and worship leader out of Australia, Hillsong Church, said it this way. Worship is creation catching a glimpse of the reality of the creator and then responding. That's what worship is, that when you and I catch a glimpse of who Jesus truly is, the reality of who he truly is, the inevitable response is worship. The question then becomes, if I've stopped worshiping, is it possible that I've lost sight of the reality of who he is? Because you can read from Genesis to Revelation, everyone who had a true encounter with God had one response. Worship. And, and, and so as we begin this journey, I want to talk to you about the Mary model. The model that we find from Mary's life. But before we do that, I want to give you a couple of working definitions for the words worship and the word adore. Uh, to worship in the Hebrew means to kiss like a dog licking his master's hand. Anybody, any dog owners here? Right? Uh, no matter how long you've been gone, man, you open up that door, first response. That dog will run up to you, get on your lap, and start licking your hand and licking you all over. You know what that's called? It's called adoration. There's only one response that that dog has to your presence. That dog adores you. And that is the picture of what worship truly is. It means to kiss the hand in token of reverence. And we see that in many churches today, uh, especially the Catholic church, where when a, 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 a priest or even a, a lay person uh, is in the presence of, a, of the pope or a bishop or a cardinal, they kiss his ring. That's where that word comes from, proskuneo. It means to lick the hand or to kiss the ring as a sign of reverence. In honor. And what God is saying to us is when was the last time our response to him 
was adoration. The word adore means to regard with utmost esteem, with love and respect, to honor, to like, to admire very much, to love intensely or deeply. The word adore also means to worship. There are several examples of worship and adoration, especially among Orientals. Uh, uh, For instance, the Persians, they would fall upon their knees and touch the ground with their forehead as an expression of profound reverence when they were in the presence of greatness. In the New Testament, one way that we demonstrate adoration is to kneel or to prostrate in order to pay homage as an expression of respect to those who have a greater rank than us. And I'm laying the foundation because I'm going somewhere. Why is this idea of worship important for every believer? John chapter 4, verses 23 and 24, give us the why behind the what. This is what Jesus himself said. Jesus is having this encounter with a woman at the well. It is a Samaritan woman, and there are uh, several taboos that happen in that passage in John chapter 4. Number one, Jesus is a man speaking to a woman in public who is not his wife. Taboo number one. Taboo or, 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 or the thing that sh- should be reason for concern is that it's in the, middle of this di- in the middle of the day, and this woman shows up at the well by herself. In a culture where typically the women came early in the morning to draw water with all their friends. The fact that she's at the well in the middle of the day all by herself speaks to the fact that this woman had been rejected and ostracized because of her story and her history. And Jesus begins this conversation with this woman and it quickly turns to worship. And this lady says, this lady says, oh man, the day is coming. And it'll soon be here. Uh, or or, or uh, your people worship uh, here and my people worship there. You're Jews and you worship here and we are Samaritans and we worship there. And Jesus says, don't get it twisted. Worship is never about the geographical location. And Jesus begins this conversation about what true worship is. And this is what he says. He says, but the hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers, somebody say true worshipers. Those two words, true worshipers, infer that there is such a thing as worship that is not authentic. The fact that Jesus says there's coming a time when true worshipers will emerge means that maybe there is a time and in a season when our worship is not genuine and it's not pure. It's about the outward forms instead of a condition of our hearts. He says, but the hour is coming, and now is, right now, when true worshipers will worship the Father. How? In spirit, from the depth of my heart, from the secret place, not from my head, not from my vocal cords, but from my inner man, my inner person, and I will do it in truth, without hypocrisy, without falsehood, without pretense, without wearing a mask and just simply coming just as I am, broken, busted, and disgusted. Not trying to impress the person next to me, not trying to consider what the person next to me might think, just simply coming as I am, like that woman with the alabaster box who was of ill repute. And when she shows up with her alabaster box, everybody's saying, Jesus, if you knew who that woman really was, you wouldn't let her touch you. 
And yet Jesus received her worship because she did it in spirit and in truth. Uh, Jesus goes on and says, God is spirit and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Real quick, three truths, truths about worship. I'm going to share this with you. We'll dive into the Mary model and you'll be out of here. Three truths about worship. Number one, worship magnifies God. And I know you've heard that before. And I know you've heard that over and over. But how many of you will, will agree with me? that most of us know more about things than our actions dictate. How many know more about diet than your plate every day <laughs> demonstrates? How many of us know more about exercise than our daily routine suggests? Knowledge alone is insufficient. So let's take that in for a second. Because if we understood the significance of what I just said, that worship magnifies God, that when you and I worship, what we do is we shift our focus from the size of our problem and we put our attention on the size of our God, we would worship more often. We would live a more victorious life. Because what we do is we magnify our problems and minimize our God. And we live lives of quiet desperation because if you don't see God for who he truly is, there's no true expression of worship. And the Bible says God is looking. He's looking for true worshipers. His eyes are going to and fro throughout the whole earth and wondering if his people will respond in true worship. If his people will stop long enough at Christmas time when your mailbox is filled with coupons and door busters and the pressure of buying our kids the right gifts and the pressure of putting on the perfect holiday party, if we will stop long enough to see Jesus at work in our midst, if we'll stop long enough to simply worship. Mm. Uh -uh. The reason we worship is number one, it magnifies God. We make God bigger than our problem. Number two, Number two truth, the second truth about true worship is that worship, let me mess up your theology real quick. Okay, y'all ready for this? Let me mess up your theology. Worship is for our benefit, not God's. Let me mess up your theology for a second. The way we act when it comes to worship is that somehow God is just this cosmic narcissist and if we don't worship him, he won't feel good about himself. Oh, I can't believe City Church came and nobody sang today. <laughs> I can't believe nobody worships me anymore. I'm no longer God because nobody worships me. No, this is what the Bible says about God. He is El Shaddai, the all-sufficient one. God is God all by himself. He doesn't need your worship. He doesn't need my worship. The reason God looks for true worshipers is because when we worship, it benefits us. Amen. 
I just had a flashback of Lord Farquaad from Shrek. Sometimes we think God's that way, right? He's lying on his bed with his hairy chest. And he's got this mirror. And even though he's the ruler of the kingdom, privately he's battling insecurities. And somehow we think that our worship puffs God up and makes him more God. No, no. Our worship is for our benefit. Because our worship puts us in a place of surrender and complete and total reliance on God. It brings us to a place where we daily acknowledge our desperate need for God. It brings us to a place where we open our mouths in thanksgiving and acknowledge if it had not been for God, none of this, none of who I am would be possible. Worship is not for God. Worship is for our benefit so that we can get the right perspective as we navigate life. Number three, number three, number three. Worship is more than a song. It is a lifestyle. That is so cliche, so cliche. But how often we miss that because true worship goes beyond the music. It's about the substance over the style. It's about the principle over our preferences. It's about God giving, God receiving his due worth. It's about God receiving his due worth. I think I'm getting ahead of myself here, but I think this is a good place to say it. Because the moment you and I stop worshiping, the moment you and I stop having a heavenly focus, what we've done is we've lost sight of all that God has done. We lose sight of everything that God is doing around us, and we become self-centered, inward-focused, and self-absorbed. In fact, one of my favorite things about Rick Warren's book, The Purpose Driven Life. How many of you have read The Purpose Driven Life? A few hands. Anybody remember the first line in the book? The very first line when you open up the book, chapter one. I think it's four words. Yeah, four words. It's not about you. If you and I are going to live a purpose driven life, ground zero is recognizing That this life and everything that happens in us and for us and ultimately through us, it's not about you. It's not about me. And worship brings us back to that place where we find God all over again. So if it's true that worship is not about the song and it's not about the style, but it's a lifestyle, let me give you one example of adoration from the Christmas story, and then I'll close. And I like to call it the Mary model, the Mary blueprint, the example that she gives us of what true worship looks like beyond the music, beyond the song, and beyond the lyrics. And if I were to say what the Mary model is, it begins with an S word called surrender. All true worship begins with a life of surrender to God. One of the biggest lies we've been told and one of the biggest lies we have believed, it's it's your life. You can do what you want to. Yet the Bible says you're not your own. 
You were bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and your spirit. Worship begins with understanding that this life is not my own. It's, a life, it's all about a life of surrender to the purposes and the plans of God. And can I go on to say that in many ways, it's easier said than done. I know it sounds really cool. God, I want your will and I want your plan for my life. But as we'll discover from Mary's life, that it's not always as simple and as easy as we imagine. So let's look to the text. I didn't bring my Bible. Let me borrow somebody's Bible. Luke chapter 1. Nobody else got a Bible? What, what translation is this? Uh, NIV. NIV? Snap. Anybody got New King James? Not that NIV is bad. I just, I just, I just roll with the New King James version. Is this okay? All right. Uh, all right. All right. Are y'all with me? All right. So here we are. I'm going to begin in Luke chapter 1. I'm going to go fast and furious because I got to get y'all out of here. Uh, but let's begin at Luke chapter 1, and let's begin at verse 26. Luke chapter 1, verse 26. Uh, let's back the train up a little bit. No, let's go to 26. Sorry, sorry. Uh, no, I got to back the train up a little bit. Sorry. Uh, <laughs> Do y'all feel the pressure? Uh, okay, you know what? Let's go to 25. I mean 26. 26. Final answer, 26. And then I'll give you the backstory. How about that? Y'all ready? Uh, here we go. Uh, now in the sixth month, uh, and if you're a note taker, you need to underline or circle that because the sixth month is a snapshot in God's divine timeline. It is the sixth month for Elizabeth, who has now conceived miraculously. Now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth. Can I, can I pump the brakes there? Of all the places that God could have chosen to show up, he showed up in a place called Nazareth, y'all. Can I give you the, the, the my name? He showed up in the hood. No, no, people weren't moving to Nazareth. People were leaving Nazareth for the suburbs. In fact, when Jesus showed up and started his earthly ministry, Jesus, uh, Philip and Nathaniel talking, and Nathaniel said, can, can, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Nazareth had a reputation for being underachievers. Mediocrity, nothing, absolutely nothing was happening in Nazareth, y'all. And Jesus shows up. Sorry, the angel shows up in Nazareth. Could it be that maybe this Christmas season, God wants to show up in a place in your life that everyone has said absolutely nothing good can come out of that. Absolutely nothing good can come out of him. Absolutely nothing can come out of her. That maybe God wants to show up in the places of our lives where we have disqualified ourselves or others have disqualified us. 
Yet God says, you're still in the game, girl. You're still in the game, bruh. Jesus didn't show up in the palace. Jesus didn't show up in the suburbs. He showed up in Nazareth. Economically depressed, politically oppressed. Intellectually, there was nothing happening in Nazareth. And that's where God decides to perform this amazing miracle in the life of a teenage girl. The most unusual suspect. Uh, let, let, let's continue to read the text. I'm going somewhere with this. So he shows up in Nazareth. He shows up to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary. Mary had some plans. My daughter Nia, at an early age, for whatever reason, has always dreamed of her wedding. When Nia was four years old, she picked out her colors. She picked out the, she picked out the, the, what would, uh, the desserts she would have. She wanted to get married in a wedding dress and cowboy boots <laughs> at an early age. Most of the ladies in this room can identify that this may have been the happiest moment for Mary. Yet the angel shows up in the middle, Scott, in the middle of her plans. She had already registered on the not.com. <laughs> they had the gift registry man at Creighton Barrel and Williams Sonoma and, well, this was Nazareth. So they had their registry at Target and Walmart and, and uh, <laughs> Kmart, Dollar Store. She had picked up, yeah, Ross, Ross, Ross. Hey, anybody go to Ross, TJ Maxx, Marshall's in the house? Come on, somebody. Come on, somebody. Burlington, y'all don't get me started. This girl had her dream right in front of her. They had set a date. They had picked out the venue. Caterer. Well, this was Nazareth, so the, the family was going to cook the, the meal. And all of a sudden, in the middle of her plans, Gabriel shows up. Okay, can I mess with your theology a second time? A second time? Right, this, is, this is what we say. Is, uh, God is such a gentleman, he would never force his way in. Uh, have we been reading the same Bible? No, sometimes the plan of God is intrusive. And when God chooses you to be the one to work out his plan, he doesn't ask your permission. And in the midst of our plans, the angel Gabriel shows up and he says, pump the brakes. And this is what he says to Mary. Girl. No, 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 no. That's the wrong. That's the wrong. Three snaps in a circle. Girl. 
He's like, girl. Hey, and you know why y'all say girl, the more R's, y'all know it's something juicy, right? Be like, girl. You sitting down? Gabriel showed up and said, hey, man, check this out. You want the good news or the bad news first? And guess what Mary said? Yeah, right, 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 right. Oh, snap. <laughs> she said, I want the good news first. Y'all ready for the good news? Let, let, let get, uh, the plan of God is sometimes intrusive. Believe the best anyway. Let, let me say, believe the best anyway. When it seems like your plans have been on hold, Amen. when it seems like your plans have been interrupted, Amen. believe the best anyway. Amen. Believe that all things will work together for the good of them that love the Lord and are called according to his purpose. When God shows up and cancels the wedding, he's got bigger plans in mind. You know what I've also learned? Divine interventions are often disguised as life's interruptions. Okay. Divine interventions are often disguised as life's interruptions. I know what I know y'all know what I'm talking about. That thing that you thought was the end that was going to destroy you. God was all up in it. And here is a life interruption. When God is being intrusive, didn't ask her permission, didn't need her permission. He said, I'm going to give you the good news. Let me, let me, let me read this to you. And he says, and having come in, the angel said to her, rejoice, highly favored one. The Lord is with you and you are blessed among women. Man, that's good news. God loves me. I am favored. I am special. You is kind. You is smart. You is important. That's how he started the conversation. You want the good news first or you want the bad news? He said, give me the good news. And he says, God loves you. The favor of God is upon you. You are blessed among women. Out of all the women that he could have picked, he picked you. Little teenage Mary in backwoods Nazareth. Man, when Mary heard that greeting, Paul, Leslie, she broke out, man. Juju on that beat. Juju on that beat. Juju on that. that what's the. Man, she was like, what? Little old me? Little old me? Y'all like that? Y'all like that? Did you want that beat? Did you want Oh, snap, snap. Are you crying, Nia? Are you so embarrassed? I know, right? She ain't here today. Somebody said, where's your wife? I said, she ain't here today. I'm free. Free to be me. I don't I go do that. All right, all right. So, so where was I? You want the good news or the bad news? <laughs> and having come in, the angel said to her, Rejoice, highly favorable. And verse 29, but when, when she saw him, she was troubled at his saying 
and consider what manner of greeting this was. Like, what, what, what's this all about? And then the angel said to her, uh, don't be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Sometimes favor doesn't unfold the way we script it. And says, well, here's the deal. God loves you. In fact, he loves you so much, he's going to interrupt your wedding plans. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son and shall call his name Jesus. She's like, hold up, come again. I ain't married yet. God loves me, but what you're talking about now, you talk about me conceiving and having a child. And he says, the child will be great and will be called the son of the highest. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. Still kind of good news. Your son is going to be really special. And, and, and so Mary says in verse 34, how can this be since I do not know a man? In the midst of life's interruptions, you can direct your toughest questions to God. You can direct your toughest questions to God. Okay. Uh, And the angel answered and said to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. This thing is going to be supernatural. And the power of the highest will overshadow you. Uh, Therefore, also the Holy One who is born will be called the Son of God. Verse 36. Now, indeed, Elizabeth, your relative, has also conceived a son in her old age. And this is now the sixth month for her who was called barren. If you're taking notes, this is critical. The reason it's critical is you got to be careful about throwing shade. When it seems like everybody else is getting their miracle ahead of you, it could be that God is doing a miracle in close proximity to you so that you will look at their miracle To receive yours. Y'all miss that. Most of us see good things happening for everybody else. And we start to cry, God, what about me? When God places that miracle right in front of us so that we can see what he's done for them in order to believe that God will do it for us, seeing that our God is no respecter of persons. And he says, in order for Mary to even begin to grasp this, what the angel is saying, God did it for your cousin Elizabeth, who couldn't have kids. God can do it for you. Be careful that you don't despise the miracles happening in other people's lives. Because God could be doing it just for you. Of all the times that God could have given Zacharias and Elizabeth a child, he waited until he was ready to send the Messiah. He could have done it decades before. And sometimes we wonder, why is my miracle on hold? Somebody say this with me. It's not about you. It's about God's divine timetable. It's about God's divine order. Elizabeth's miracle was tied to the fullness of time for the Messiah to come. And the miracle that he did for Elizabeth, God used to inspire faith in Mary's heart, to believe for her miracle. Be careful who you despise because God may have put them in your life so that you can believe for your miracle. I'm about to wrap up. Now indeed, Elizabeth, your relative, has also conceived a son in her old age, and this is now her sixth month. Verse 37, for with God, nothing will be impossible. Then Mary said, Behold the maid servant of the Lord. 
Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed. This is a little teenage girl. A little teenage girl. Point number one, sometimes the plan of God is intrusive. Point number two, sometimes the plan of God is illogical. It doesn't make any sense. You little teenage girl from Nazareth, you're going to have a baby, and it's going to happen supernaturally. And she had enough trust and confidence and faith in God to say, be it unto me according to your word. I don't have to understand how it's going to happen. I don't have to explain how it's going to happen, but I know I have a word from you, and that settles it. What you've spoken to me, regardless of the external circumstances, your word is enough. Be it unto me according to your word. And I wonder how many of us this Christmas season are trying to figure out how it's all going to happen. Yet we have a word from God. And that's why here at City Church we say, trust him even when you can't trace him. Choose to believe. This is huge now. Choose to believe even when you can't understand. That's where most of us get stuck, Tony. Because we wait to understand the plan of God before we believe it. Mary didn't have to understand it. She simply believed. The Mary model of surrender. The Mary model of surrender is I have to recognize that God's plan is sometimes intrusive. He will interrupt my regularly scheduled programming. That sometimes the plan of God is illogical. He'll tell you to go west when everybody says go east. But you don't have to understand his plan. You just have to believe it. None of this happens without surrender. We can never embrace point number one. And we can never embrace point number two unless we live a life of surrender to the plan of God. Let, let, me, let me tell you the bad news. Let me tell you the bad news. While she's going to be the mother of the Messiah... The rest of her life, she has to live with this thought that the child in her belly was conceived illegitimately. In John chapter 8, when Jesus is having a conversation with the Pharisees, he says to the Pharisees, say, Abraham is our father. Or the Pharisees say to Jesus, Abraham is our father. Who your daddy? In fact, after the birth of Jesus, there is very little mention made of Joseph as his surrogate father anywhere in the text. Listen, listen, listen. This girl was on the verge of getting married to the man of her dreams. And when she says to Joseph, Joseph, I'm pregnant. The scripture says Joseph was about to call off the engagement. All her dreams had been interrupted. God had invaded her plans, and turned them upside down, and now she's left to carry a baby that she didn't ask for. Most of us miss what the scripture says. But after this incident, guess what she did? She left Nazareth, and she went to see her cousin, Elizabeth. The scripture doesn't say it explicitly, but I imagine that maybe she went to see her cousin Elizabeth after she had the conversation with her mom and dad. After she had the conversation with Joseph and she's got nowhere to turn. Joseph's trying to call off the engagement. 
My mom and dad are embarrassed that I've brought this shame on them. And I don't know uh, uh, any of you who have been in this situation, and some of you have, but I, being in ministry as long as I have, when teenage girls get pregnant, guess what we do? We ship them off to their cousins in the south. Or if we live in the south, we ship them off to their cousins in the north. And the scripture says that after she heard this thing, she ran up to Elizabeth. Not only that, when you read the text, she stayed there for three months. Why would she stay with her cousin for three months when she had a family of her own? For her first trimester, she's in hiding until she can hide no more. You think the plan of God is all roses? The plan of God is intrusive. And it's painful. Scripture says she stayed with her cousin for three months. And she had to grapple with the fact that she's pregnant in the will of God and nobody will believe her. But Mary, the favor of God is on your life. God's hand is upon you. And because God's hand is upon you, all this stuff is happening to you. Number three, and I close. The plan of God is often inconvenient. There was nothing inconvenient, I mean, nothing convenient about what God said or about what God did. But listen to Mary's response. Listen to Mary's response in Luke chapter 1 and verse 46. This is the Mary model. The Mary model is I recognize God's going to interrupt some things in my life. The Mary model is the plan of God is going to be uh, not only intrusive, but it's going to be in, illogical. It's not going to make sense. And the plan of God is also going to be inconvenient, but I will give thanks. I will worship anyway. Luke chapter 1 and verse 46. This is her expression of worship. Notice what she says in verses 46 to 49. And Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord. My will, my intellect, even my emotions will make God bigger than the problem. She worshipped a teenage girl going through a crisis, worshipped. And where did the worship originate? In her soul, the seat of her emotions, everything that she was processing and everything that she was feeling, she surrendered to God. Her intellect, her ability to decipher what was true and not true, what was right and what was wrong, she surrendered to God. And then her will, our will is our ability to say yes or no to the will of God. She surrendered it all to God and says, my soul magnifies the Lord. Even in the first trimester of this pregnancy with this morning sickness, when I have to put my plans aside in order to be the conduit for God's plan, I will still worship. I will still magnify. I will still make God bigger than my problem. She goes on. And my spirit has rejoiced in the God of my Savior, for he has regarded the lowly estate of his maidservant. For behold, henceforth all generations will call me blessed. Come on, somebody. In a couple of weeks, I'm going to do a message called Ghost of Christmas Past, Present, and Future. And there was something about Mary's conviction 
that didn't live in the moment of what she was going through. She says, because of what I'm going through right now, generations will be blessed through me. Because it's not about what you're going through, it's about what you're going to that matters. And our worship, our worship emanates from a place where we can see beyond our present struggle and our present suffering. And she worshiped from that place. What is the Mary model? We recognize that honoring and following the plan of God is sometimes inconvenient. So the question then becomes, when you and I consider everything that Mary had to give up, her dreams, her plans, her script, what will you and I give up this Christmas season now? What will you and I surrender? Because worship begins with surrender. It's not even about the song. It's not even about the song. It's not even about the music. I mean, let me tell you this. If you and I can't put our coffee cups down long enough to lift up one hand in worship, we probably haven't surrendered to God. If you and I can't even get past the hurdle of saying, I don't know the lyrics to the song, but I'm going to try to sing it, we haven't even gotten to surrender. If we can't even get to the point where we can get to worship on time, to worship, we haven't even gotten to surrender. So I ain't even talking about the song. There are greater implications, greater implications for us as Christ followers. And the question is, have I surrendered? Have I surrendered my plan to God's plan? Because that's where worship begins. It begins with surrender. And I close with this. As I'm praying and studying for this message, I, I begin to ask the tough questions. Am I still living a life of surrender to God? And I began to cry. Weep before God as I prayed. And I began to recognize the places in my own life where I had fallen from my first love. My wife will tell you about the times when we first got married when I pull out my guitar and worship for hours in the presence of God. Something happened. Something happened in ministry where I gave away all my guitars. I gave away all my musical instruments. And I never wanted to worship again. At least not publicly. I would always be a worshiper in private. And to this day, when I pick up the bass or I pick up, the, when I play the drums, or the, you guys haven't heard me play drums at City Church, but I do play the drums, or when I play the keyboard, I still have to overcome that hurdle in my heart. Amen. And I make God pay for what men did. God didn't do it. And I withhold my worship from a God who gave me his only begotten son just because somebody hurt me. And you guys have heard me say it before. It's the ex-boyfriend syndrome. We make the new boyfriend pray for what the last boyfriend did. God didn't do it. And so God started to deal with me and say, Ray, pick up your guitar again. And steal away like you used to. Where there was wave after wave after wave of worship in the presence of God. 
because I still adored him. Because he was still the love of my life. And our worship stops when we stop seeing God for who he is. So this Christmas season and over the next three weeks, I pray, I pray that you and I will see him again. See him for who he is and begin to adore him again. Because even though his plan is intrusive sometimes, even though his plan is illogical sometimes, even though his plan is inconvenient sometimes, he still loves me. He still loves me. And Father knows best. Father, I pray for my church. In fact, Lord, I pray for your church.